Hello and welcome back to Non-Essential Workers. I'm your host, Marlena. This is episode 9, Catharsis, where I get to speak with Genevieve Salamon, a Huron-Wendat violinist, producer, and composer currently based in Des Moines, Iowa. In addition to being a regular member of the Des Moines Symphony and Des Moines Metro Opera, she's a self-managed artist with over 200 annually booked performances with her solo act, The One Woman Symphony, and her violin duo, Dueling Fiddles. Her debut original album, Catharsis, will be available to stream on May 28, 2021. The music from Catharsis is inspired by Salomone's trauma in confronting PTSD as a result of childhood sexual abuse. In this episode, we discuss her abuse story, rediscovering her indigenous heritage, the joys of interdisciplinary collaboration, and more. I do want to give a content warning for this episode, as we do discuss sexual abuse as well as residential school trauma. So listen with discretion. Yeah, so welcome to this platform, and thank you for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. I am. Um, I think you will be my, no, are you ninth or tenth? Anyway, it's getting up there. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to start by just uh, giving a little intro about who you are and what you do? Yeah, yeah so my name is Geneviève Salomone and I am a Huron-Wendat violinist uh, based currently in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I am a full-time freelance musician. I perform also um, with my Dueling Fiddles duo. Um, Pre-pandemic, of course, we were performing for for state, uh, you know, stages and in crowds, and we miss that a lot. Um, but during this pandemic, I've had the opportunity to compose. So this has kind of been a work in progress for me for about ten years now. Um, I mean, I've only come forward with my um, my abuse story recently. Like it took me until I was twenty five years old. Years old. Um, I had seen you know the me too movement coming forward and actually what it was for me was when i saw the uh the gymnastics um you remember that trial the gymnastics trial yeah it just it shook me so much and the amount of bravery i saw in those women coming forward it's my dog (laughs) 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 he just pops his nose um no but the amount of bravery i saw in those women inspired me to come forward with my own story um, you know, I, I had been sexually abused by my father for the first 15 years of my life. Um, it was ongoing. It wasn't like a one-time thing. And it was just something I couldn't talk about for so long because there was this huge stigma against survivors and survivor's guilt and people saying, well, why, why would you wait so long to tell your story? But instead, you need to be asking questions like, why, what is causing this person to not want to come forward? You know what I mean? So that that's kind of actually what inspired my upcoming album release, um, confronting those issues um, and overcoming my post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I did re- get I was diagnosed with complex PTSD after years of therapy and and you know working through um, a lot of um, you know my my 
my issues, um, but it's been very cathartic to use, you know, this as uh, inspiration to write music, you know. I always had issues like, kind of expressing myself and how I really felt, um, you know, previously. So the idea of catharsis, that do you know what that word means? Yeah, yeah. I love that word. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too, obviously. But I love it so much because it means it's the release of pent-up emotions. And I feel like the day that I finally came forward with my story, it just, I felt so relieved and, and it was so cathartic for me to come forward and um, to pour that, you know, amount of emotion into my music was just beautiful, you know? So that's, that's kind of how that started. And we can talk a little bit more about that project, but yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. So, um, okay. So uh, do you remember like the moment you decided to come forward with your story and, yeah. and how did that, how did you go about doing that? It was actually centered around my wedding. Um, so when I was getting married in 2017, there, there were questions. Um, my, my parents would ask me, what song do you want to do for your first dance with your dad? And I said, I don't want to do that. I have no desire to do that because I don't want him to touch me. Mm -hmm. And obviously that raised some questions. Um, so one night when my mom was visiting, um, cause she, they used to live out on the East coast in, in, in Virginia. Um, I finally told her and it broke my heart because we found out shortly after that there were five other victims oh my um, in my family. Yeah, my cousins. Um, so five people, including myself. Yes. Okay. The moment that I came forward, everybody else came forward. Wow. And nobody talked to each other. My family was so closed up and we we didn't know each other. And And, and kind of the beautiful thing that came out of this was that we were able to communicate and I feel like for the first time we actually felt like family. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, because I feel like before there were always these pretenses and things that were unsaid and things people didn't want to talk about, you know, so there's that whole stigma again. Um, but yeah, when so when I came forward, everyone else came forward, um, you know, and my mother immediately moved out and she moved to Iowa to be with me. Um, you know, she had to get away obviously. And my father was a sociopath, um, like, like a legitimate sociopath and manipulates absolutely, or he would manipulate everything, um, that you've tried to say to him. So it was really difficult, um, confronting him personally, um, took me a while to, to come up with the strength to talk to him. And I never actually spoke with him like verbally, like on the phone. I wrote a letter. I just felt like that was more, I was able to control what I was, what I wanted to get out better. So I wrote him a letter um, telling, telling him that I remembered everything. And uh, he wrote one back and <laughs> I sent it back. I didn't want to read it because I knew he was going to tell me. And I found out later that this was accurate and I'll tell you how we came to that, but later, uh, I mean, um, I came to that conclusion that he was trying to 
manipulate my own memories of what had happened. Um, right. As, as a lot of abusers tend to do, you know, but the strength in numbers was what helped me get through this, despite it being just severely messed up that other members of my family had to experience this. I felt stronger with them. You know what I mean? It was, it made it more real. Not that it wasn't real, but it, I, it just made me feel not crazy. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. Oh my gosh. There's so much power to that. Like, Ugh, like yeah. Yeah. So, um, my father died very suddenly right before Christmas, uh, in 2017. Yeah. So it was pretty shortly after all of this came to light. Um, I don't believe it was an accident. It was ruled as an accident. It was ruled as a heart attack. But he wrote an email to us the day he died saying goodbye. Oh, wow. Yeah. And essentially saying it was my fault. Yeah. Saying he hoped I could live with myself. So that that took a while to get over. That took a while to get to work through. And it's still hard even just talking about that. It's messed up. It really is. Because even in his final act, he couldn't even give me the justice that I deserved, you know? Right. It's like well, lying till the very end, right? Oh, and it gets worse because when we went to clear out his apartment in D.C., we found, I'm assuming it was the letter he sent me in the mail because um, <clears throat> it was dated around that time. And it was a long, drawn-out story about why it, uh, it was a long drawn out story of him justifying what he did to me my goodness i know and and it was very well written and it sounded so convincing despite it obviously being severely messed up you know but it, you know that's that was who he was and it took me a long time to realize that the reason why i was so afraid to be myself was because i i i didn't even know who i was i i was protecting myself I think for so many years I just kind of buried everything you know just to allow myself to get through um so coming like coming to terms with it you know in therapy um it saved my life it really did and music saved my life too because when I when I started playing violin when I was 10 years old, it was, you know, I was still at that time being abused and music for me became something that I could immerse myself in. Um, I would lock myself in my room for hours playing violin and I loved it. I loved that I could escape and I could just become something else and imagine I'm somewhere else and imagine, you know, I remember as a kid dreaming, where, where am I going to be with this violin in, you know, 20 years and, you know, it's kind of cool to think now that here I am and I think I would be proud of myself at this point so absolutely you should be so proud of yourself wow well I mean yeah I'm I'm so sorry you went through that I mean it's it's not <laughs> I mean yeah it's it was a terrible thing to happen but I think you know in a way it's it's made me who I am it's made me the strong person that I am not saying that I would ever go through it again, but you know, I'm okay. I think I turned out all right now, but, um, and again, I think for me channeling my music through those emotions 
has become my therapy, my catharsis. So on this album that is going to be released on May 28th, each piece on the album actually reflects a different emotion or memory along this healing process. So like the title piece, Catharsis, is the first piece on the album and it is just is about me confronting my emotions for the first time. And I feel like the music, I, I tried to write it in like a thematic way that it it would sound like that. You know what I mean? So, but we were, um, I was so, so lucky to have the opportunity to, um, to expand upon this release because this album release, because in addition to releasing um, the music, we're also uh, producing like, essentially like a like an album release concert but it's a production I guess um so one of my good friends Nathan Starr from the Vine Productions he's my friend here in Des Moines very very talented videographer <clears throat> and director we uh came came up with this idea of um you know in lieu of performing live somewhere for an album release because of COVID we came up with this idea of doing a, a virtual like release um, so I wanted to tell my story though. That was important to me. I really wanted people to understand what the music was about. Um, so we decided to film, um, a mini documentary behind the making of the album with, you know, interviews, but, you know, interviews from like my mom and a couple friends, um, behind the scenes of some of our video shoots, but also just me talking pretty much about what I'm talking about right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's become so much more beautiful than I ever could have imagined because in addition to that, uh, mini documentary, we're producing 13 music videos. It's going to be like something that you, you sit down and watch like a concert. It's about an hour. It's going to be approximately an hour long, um, production, but we made 13 original music videos. Well, I guess we've made 11. We have two more to go. Um, but they, uh, are featuring, you know, music from the album. But in addition to that, I'm also collaborating with a lot of local artists that have been impacted by, uh, COVID. So I'm, I know I'm not alone in the arts community when I say I'm like bored out of my mind. I don't have many gigs. I want to be creative, you know, and a lot of these artists that I've, I've collaborated with feel the exact same way. So, um, I, worked with some professional ballerinas from Ballet Des Moines. Um, I had an aerialist in one of my videos, which was so cool. Yeah, that was a fun one. And then um, we also, uh, I did something with a, a, a light flow artist. So I don't know if you're familiar with that is. I, I didn't know what the title of it was, but like at music festivals, those um, people that have like the lights that this kind of stuff, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, these hand motions, but <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 So we did something with that because that, that piece is called Electrify. Um, and it's kind of about uh, almost like a panic attack that like electric kind of feeling like anxiety. I think that one's probably more driven by anxiety. So I was like, how can we make this look electric you know so we um shot in a warehouse and she uh we did it with like this strobe light and she's doing like these things with the strobe light oh my gosh I can't wait to show that one that was gonna be so dope um so that was a fun one I mean they're all like amazing I also filmed um one of my pieces on top of a 14,000 
foot mountain in Colorado and I am afraid of heights. <laughs> so that was like overwhelming, but also it was kind of cool at the same time because it was called um, resilience. And it's also about, you know, just going for it, you know? And I feel like that was kind of symbolic in that particular video because, you know, I'm overcoming like my fear in that moment, you know, at the same time. We later found out I was standing right next to a mountain lion den. That was fun. Oh, um, wow. I know, right? My sister-in-law was like, you're probably standing next to when she lives in Denver and she was looking at the footage. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm really glad that didn't go poorly. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, um, We've got two more to go. Um, I'm also collaborating with a lot of uh, local venues in town here. Very humbled at their willingness to collaborate on this project. Um, we're creating some really beautiful things. But the finale we're filming in um, an old theater here is called Hoyt Sherman Place. And it's, it's kind of like an old school like looking opera house, but it has like balcony tiered seating and this beautiful like kind of golden stage and it was my dream to film there and i was like but there's no way i can afford to like to do that um so but i'm like you know what why not i'm going to just reach out and just let's see what happens why not i explained the project and they were like so excited and i'm like dude all you have to do is ask you know all you have to do is ask but that particular video that's for the finale of the whole production and um it's going to feature a couple other of my colleagues from the Des Moines Symphony and also a few of my students from my private studio. Um, we're all going to get tested for COVID right before the shoot, of course, just to be on the safe side. Um, but we're going to be kind of standing like in this V formation. I know that like this sounds weird when I explain it out loud, but on the stage. Um, and it's it's called Anthem for the Dreamers. And we're supposed to be like inspiring our youth. Um, and it, it's just this really powerful anthem um it's just very uplifting and then to top it off like a cherry on top we're gonna have a ballerina dancing right in the middle of us so i know it's so amazing i can't wait and it's like it's so beautiful this project has evolved so much in the last year and it's just i am beyond excited to share it with the world so thank you so much for for going through that and um explaining like sort of the origin of the album and uh, taking us through a little bit of what to expect. I, I, I really admire like number one, the interdisciplinary aspect um, of what you're doing. I'm always interested in people doing interdisciplinary stuff. It's the thing that has always fascinated me the most, you know, working with dancers and other types of oh. artists. And that's honestly part of the, that was part of the inspiration for this podcast because I kind of wanted to create like a an online platform or community where people from different disciplines can chat and connect because I think we get so insular sometimes with our you know either our classical music stream or our whatever it might be our dance our whatnot and we don't realize that there's so many possibilities to collaborate <laughs> and create just these multi-level and it adds new colors to the palette too, which is what was so beautiful. So <clears throat> I had, when I worked with the ballerinas um, for our title piece, Catharsis, um, so they're in two of the music videos. One is for the finale and one's the very first one, the Catharsis, the title piece. Um, 
I had no idea what to expect. I, I had no idea. What, and I was so nervous. I don't know why I was nervous. Um, cause I was just, I really wanted it to be a certain way, like for it to be portrayed a certain way. And when I saw their choreography for the first time, I cried like a baby. <laughs> I did. Oh my gosh. And I'm like even getting emotional now thinking about it. They just, they brought a new like color. They brought, they brought their own, you know, their own art and we've created something together. And that's like kind of going off of what you just said. I felt like that was so beautiful. I've never really experienced that before. And we were all so excited just to be working with each other. You know, it was really a neat experience. Yeah. And I think you said something really interesting too. You said, um, you said sometimes all you have to do is ask. And I think that's what people don't realize is like, I have people booked for this podcast till April and like, yeah, most of them are people in my general community, but like some people I just approached, you know, like for you, yeah, you just have to approach people and be like, Hey, I like what you do. Do you want to chat? Yes. You know, and yep. not everyone's going to have the time or going to, you know, have the resources or what, whatnot, but, um, but yeah, there's so many opportunities I think that people don't realize they can have just by asking or by. People are always shy to do that. And I think it's important in our industry. I mean, I hate to say it, but we have to sell ourselves. You have to, you have to be willing to go after your dreams. It's not going to happen by sitting there and waiting for it to hit you like lightning. You know, that's, that's pretty rare. And maybe it does happen, but most of the time you have to, you have to pave your own path. You have to, you know, you have to make your choices and, and go for it. Don't be afraid. You know, what's the worst that can happen? They say no. Right. They say no, that's all, you know? But I know we wanted to talk a little bit about my indigenous heritage and I'd love to do that a little bit. So um, my mother is from the Huron-Wendat Nation, which is just outside of Quebec City on the reservation Wendaki. Um, come from a long line of snowshoe makers. Um, yeah, they used to have their own shop on the reservation and made snowshoes and have a few just kind of hanging around on my walls in my house here, but they're, it's really, they're really beautiful. Um, but anyways, so this, the album that I'm going to be releasing, um, as I mentioned, is featuring essentially women empowerment, um, you know, based on my experiences and, you know, sexual abuse. So it felt natural to want to also include the missing and murdered indigenous women movement. Um, it's such an important movement that has very little light shed upon it. Um, it's very sad because there still are so many victims that have not found any form of justice, you know, and I don't know if you've heard of that famous highway in British Columbia. Um, highway of Tears? Yes. Yeah. Thank you um, for that name. Yes. The Highway of Tears. How sad is that? You know, hundreds of women and girls found along it, you know, dead and nothing has been done about it to address that. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with years of over-sexualization, um, you know, and I hate to say it, but fetishes like in, you know, in the way that indigenous women are portrayed in film tv music um you know i took several indigenous study classes at mcgill and we actually went over a lot of these topics and it was very enlightening because i never thought about it before you know and i think another 
side note is that I never actually had heard of the residential school system until I went to McGill. Mm. You Did you know about it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. America. No, they did not oh, teach me it's that. Not America, it's here too. I didn't, oh let me be clear. I didn't learn about it in school. <laughs> my grandmother was in the residential school oh, wow. and she didn't even tell us. I mean, we found out later that she, um, they would, the, the nuns would like hit their, their knuckles with like rulers sideways and like crazy things like that. Or they would stick needles in the tongues of indigenous children if they were caught speaking their indigenous tongue, disgusting, you know, and it's years of oppression of, I mean, literally there was uh, an article, I think in the 1800s, when I went to McGill, I could have told you what his name was, who wrote it, but um, it was titled kill the Indian child within. So the whole purpose of like the residential schools was to, brainwash these kids and to kill their culture. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because when I recently connected with my mother again about our heritage, she, she, we never ha had talked about it much growing up, you know, and, and she explained to me, I was always so embarrassed to talk about it. I always thought people would laugh at me. She said that about her heritage and that breaks my heart. And the reason why she said that is because there's so many generations before her of the residential school system of the government the indian act trying to kill their culture and tell them that what they know as their heritage is wrong and is savage i hate to use that word but they use it a lot against us and it's despicable it is just because it's different doesn't mean it's it's bad you know um and also Side note, we were here first, just saying Turtle Island was here long before North America. But anyways, um, so I, I got that inspiration um, for one of my pieces, uh, kind of tracing along the missing and murdered indigenous women movement. So I wanted to write a piece that invoked the feeling of being brave, being brave for those women to speak on their behalf. And that's what the piece is called. It's called Brave. Um, and I really wanted to feature um, red dresses hanging in the trees. And I, I don't know if you're familiar. There was an art exhibit in Canada, I want to say, in Ontario somewhere. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I, I believe I saw it. Um... Yeah, it was a few years back. Um, but uh, the, And there's been a couple versions of that exhibit across Canada where they hang red dresses in the trees to symbolize all of the missing and murdered indigenous women. And it's just, it's a haunting, it's so haunting to see those red dresses just kind of swaying in the trees. And it just makes you think, you know, that it just, I don't know, it just evokes that emotion of just, for me, sadness for them, um, you know, but it also, it makes me angry and it makes me want to say something, you know, which is why I wrote that piece of music. So um, leading up to that music video shoot, uh, we filmed it uh, about a month ago, I think. <clears throat> I was learning some traditional steps um, because I, I wanted to. I saw that on your Instagram. That's yeah! <laughs> I'm not really good at dancing. Let me just put that out there. So it was already a challenge for me to try to do the steps, um, but they were more intricate than I thought they were. 
Like it always looked like it was easy, but when you actually try to do it, it's like, it, I don't know, I'm directionally challenged. So that, that could just be me. <laughs> but, um, but what was so amazing is my mom, um, she taught me them and she, I've never, my whole life, you know, I'm 20 years old, my whole life, I've never seen her dance before. How sad is that? So sad. And I think what is the most depressing about that is that she told me she she founded the dance troupe on her reservations. It's called Sundokwa. It was uh, for the sun. It, that's, uh, I, I believe that's what it was in um, here on Wendat. But she founded the dance troupe on the reservation and it's still in existence to this day. Clearly it meant a lot to her at one point in her life. And what was so beautiful about that collaboration is my mother and I, we've had some tension in our relationship for obvious reasons. Um, for what happened with my father, of course. Um, but learning this little nugget of heritage from her and the way I saw her light up when she was teaching me it, we bonded and it, it was, it was very, it was a very special moment for us, um, to learn that, you know, I just, I've been hungry to learn more about my ancestors and to finally have this like piece of reality it was it was just really special so after i saw her dance i'm like yo mom you need to be in my video because <laughs> i mean i can do a little bit but you look way more comfortable doing it <laughs> and you can do all these other combinations that i can't do <laughs> so <laughs> you're gonna be in my video and then she was so excited so when I was younger, my mom and I used to figure skate together, and that was something that we had a lot of fun doing. And this kind of reminded me a little bit of, of those memories. So there we were just dancing in the middle of this forest, surrounded by all these red trees. And it, it, it really honestly felt like it, we, were, we were communicating with something. Like it just, it was so beautiful. It was like very spiritual. And I'm not a very spiritual person, but it felt very powerful when we were doing it. Um, it was so beautiful. So I cannot wait to share that one with you guys. So, yeah. That's so special. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't help but notice the parallels between like um, the trauma that you described of the sexual abuse and how the members of your family didn't talk to each other, right, about what was happening and then this sort of secrecy around the traumas that your relatives experienced in the residential schools and this oh, sort yeah, of yeah. yeah that's true sense of secrecy around mm -hmm. trauma um there's it's a stigma there's just the victim so pervasive yeah why why do you i mean why do you think that is why do you think it's so difficult for people to connect um about traumatic events <clears throat> I think, at least for me, I was afraid of not being believed. Right. That was my greatest fear. That was what I personally was afraid of. The second thing I was afraid of was, what would people think? <laughs> I, it shouldn't be what I was afraid of, but I was. You know, I didn't want people to look down upon me, think I'm disgusting, because I feel disgusting from what happened. Trust me, <laughs> I do. Um, but you know, when you're a kid, you, you don't, when you're so young, you have no idea what's going on. Um, so that, that kind of actually reminds me a little bit of 
the moment I realized what was going on was wrong. Um, it was I was in elementary school and we had a guidance counselor come in and they did their spiel on sexual harassment and in they were explaining these things, you know, tell an adult, you know, and they were explaining these things when and I just remember sitting there thinking, well, this happens to me all the time, you know, and I'm just looking around and, and like, you know, kids are kids at that age are kind of mean and are laughing and stuff. You know what I mean? Um, when things like that are talked about um, and I just felt ashamed in that moment. And I think that's a large uh, reason why a lot of victims don't come forward. It's shame. Shame. But my words for those people that feel that way is you do not need to be ashamed and you are not alone. You know, you will never be alone and there's strength in numbers. You know, I think that's really important to remember because that helps me get through that, you know? Yeah. Are there any resources um, online or books or in the community that helped you that you could recommend for anybody? Yeah. Well, this one personally helped me because, oh, God, sorry. <laughs> Whoops, that was my face. Um, yeah, this one was like my Bible for a while. Okay, so for those listening just on audio, it's called the Post Traumatic Stress Disorder Source Book. Okay, by Glenn R. Sheraldi. There we go. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, for me, it was important to understand my mental health disorder um, because I was able to pinpoint a lot of the anxiety and some of my behavioral things that I didn't understand happened growing up. Um, but yeah, this book helped me a lot because it was written very easily. It's definitely user-friendly in the sense that you can understand what they're saying. It's not all, um, you know, medical talk. So, yeah, I think for people that are coping with mental health issues, the most important thing is to understand yourself, you know, so that you can pinpoint your triggers, at least for, for me, it would be my triggers. Um, you know, I, I also, as a result of PTSD, I have panic disorder, anxiety, and really severe depression. Um, there's just a lot of things that kind of stem off from it. Um, and it took me a long time to understand that. And even actually at McGill, um, when I, I, I wasn't, I didn't talk about my trauma at that point. I wasn't out of the closet, if you will, in that regard. But um, <clears throat> I was seeing a psychiatrist there. He was explaining all my symptoms, except for the the trauma, of course, because that was buried deep, deep in the back of my head. Um, they they diagnosed me with ADHD, <laughs> right? I know. So they gave me Ritalin. Okay. Now that is literally the worst thing they could have given me. Like it literally was like fuel to the flame, to my anxiety, to my depression, everything. That was a disaster. That was kind of when I spiraled a little bit. That was probably like my lowest mental health threshold, if you will. Um, 
and that's uh I think that was about when I started seeing a therapist too actually for the first time yeah I have sometimes found that no treatment is better than the wrong treatment medicine wise yes a hundred percent I mean like I've had some pretty bad therapists yeah pretty bad and that can be really in my own experience that can be very harmful you know someone someone who doesn't understand you because we all we all come up with a way of kind of coping on our own it might be dysfunctional but it's there and but then if you're seeing someone who doesn't understand you who doesn't know how to talk to you um or who doesn't have the proper qualifications for what you're dealing with um it can be so detrimental yeah so harmful really important to to make a connection with your therapist now that I've had a couple I have like my main one now I love her so much oh my gosh I would not change her for anything um but I had a couple that kind of triggered me the the wrong way and made me feel shame a therapist made me feel ashamed um of the way I was feeling And, and to be fair that was again before I even came out with my my um my story but it was because it was just, it was in a box locked away and it just, it was buried and it didn't even come to my mind for like many years, which later I found out could have been bad down the road if it exploded. So thank goodness I, uh, I opened that box up, <laughs> you know, figuratively speaking, my catharsis, but um, yeah, no therapy. I think, I think it's important to self, to take care of yourself. It's important um, to be a friend to yourself, you know, to love yourself. I think that's something a lot of people struggle with, you know, but I found more happiness um, after taking care of myself and taking care of myself meant to go to a therapist. It meant, you know, trying antidepressants, which I was really like, like, meh, I didn't want to, I've had, cause I had bad experiences with them in the past, but, but now that I, I found something that works for me and I, I have a really great like system now, a really great, um, community around me, a supportive community. And I think that's important too, you know, friends and yeah, non-toxic family members around you or, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show how hearing other people's stories too can can help others mm-hmm. in the same situation, like how you mentioned with the the gymnastic story. Yes. Um, you know, it does work. It does it does encourage oh, their survivors yeah. to come forward. So I remember when that trial happened. I think it was like three and a half, some hours like that. I watched every second of it live. I couldn't stop watching. It was, I was just glued to the TV. I was sobbing. I was ugly crying the whole time I watched that. But it was empowering to me. And um, actually, this reminds me now, uh, since I came forward with my story, I've had over a dozen people come to me, come to me to tell me that I inspired them to come forward. And, and that's, that's kind of what is so beautiful about 
talking about this. I know it's hard to talk about, but it's so important to talk about because it makes other people feel safe to be able to talk about it so that they can begin their own healing journey, you know? Yeah. And the thing about shame you were saying, and I think I, I think I'm getting this now from Brene Brown, but she says, you know, how shame is so insidious. And as soon as you shine a light on it, that's what shrinks it, right? Like secret, secretly feeds shame, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, had, had my family members just talk to each other, it wouldn't have had to last for 15 years. You know, that's, that's, that's the way, you know, that's, that's it. <laughs> uh, what do you say to people that might not feel ready to share their story or ready to come forward? Cause I'm sure there's people who oh, yeah. feel like there's this pressure to become public with their trauma. And what if they're not, they don't feel that that comes natural to them. Yeah. How, how can someone like that? You can write it down for yourself. I would say, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to like make a Facebook post about it. I did it. I wrote a Facebook post because to me, that was the easiest way I could get the information to absolutely everybody, like including like friends of my parents. Cause I wanted everybody to know. I just wanted it to be out there. And that was the scariest damn thing I've ever done. Oh my <laughs> God. <gasps> but it was worth it. What I, were you doing after you hit post? I sat and stared <laughs> to wait to see what people commented. I wanted because see again it goes back to I was worried about what other people thought. It it goes back to that and it shouldn't be, but it it was and I had so much love and support when I did that. But to the people that aren't ready to do that, I would say it's okay. You don't have to do that. But for yourself, you owe it to yourself to heal you know you need to find that path yourself it's it may take time that is okay a really great outlet for me is um to write to journal um that was of course my therapist recommendation <laughs> but uh but she recommended um at, during a period of time when i was not talking to my dad before he died um i had a lot of things i wanted to say to him but i didn't want to communicate with him so she told me to write letters to him, even though I knew I wasn't going to send them. She told me to write the letters and the act of putting it down means that you're, you're putting it out, you're, you're expelling it. And I, w I would say to people that need that relief, but don't want to make it like a huge show or make it as public to just put it down somewhere. You can burn it after if you want, write it out, you know, make, make some, point of putting your thoughts out there okay because it, it brings it to reality and then from that point you can decide to let it go you know or or to allow yourself to begin to heal from it but it's it's important to not bottle things up and I've learned that the hard way unfortunately you know it's dangerous to bottle things up because you're gonna, you're gonna explode someday. <laughs> you will someday you'll, you'll crack and it, you know, you just, you need to take care of yourself. And it took me 25 years, but I, I finally figured it out, but it was only because of the help of, of friends and, uh, and a good support system, i.e. like my therapist. 
found a really great psychiatrist that I trust in. That was really important to me too, because as we talked about, I had that like experience at McGill where they just threw medicine at me. Like literally it was just this guy sitting in this chair in the corner. He's like, so you have X, Y, Z symptoms. Like, yep. All right. Here's your prescription. That was literally that. That was, that was that confrontation. My, my other psychiatrist here, we had like an hour long chat. We talked about my traumas. I broke down in her thing, in her uh, office. She didn't have one of those chairs though, but <laughs> no, but it was important to me to trust, you know, because, uh, for so many years of my life, there was absolutely no trust. I didn't trust anybody at all. And to be able to finally let them in is when I was allowed to start healing. When I allowed myself to start healing, I should say. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think getting a second, just re-read doctors and the sort of automatic prescription, like getting a second opinion never hurts either, right? Like if you have a feeling that something doesn't feel right or someone didn't give you the time of day, um, you know, I once waited six months to get into, um, to see a psychiatrist at the Royal in, in Ottawa. And, you know, I went in and the appointment was all of 10 minutes. And then she came out giving me the same medication that my GP had given me. So, you know, there's a lot of, like, it's not necessarily their fault. Sometimes the system is saturated, but, you know, fight to get yourself that second opinion if something doesn't feel right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I just have one more question for you. Um, how can, like, you've, you've, you've done such an amazing um, job of transforming all of these very traumatic experiences into beautiful art and channeling that. How can, how can someone do that? How can someone transform something that's so negative um, and channel it into something so positive? Like, how do you go about that? That's a beautiful question because I felt like it was a scar for a while. You know what I mean? And I, I guess you could kind of use the analogy of the, you know, those breast cancer survivors who, who've had the mastectomies and they get these beautiful tattoos to cover it up. The scars are still there. It's still a part of them, but they've, and they, they've created something new, um, out of it to channel it, um, to channel that pain, you know, and that's, that's what I did with my music. I, I would say to someone that's looking to do the same thing, um, to try new things, you know, I, I actually found a passion for painting also. I mean, I'm, I'm no like, you know, artist, like professional by any means, but it's very therapeutic just to, to put the colors out there and try to channel what you're feeling in here and putting it out there. Okay. Because I feel like a lot of people with mental health issues have a hard time expressing their true feelings. I mean, I'm sure I would say maybe generally people have that issue, but, um, but you have to, you have to learn, you just have to learn to channel it, I suppose. Where can people find you if they want to contact you for, um, gigs or just to tell you how much they love your music or? So they can find me on Instagram at the one woman symphony. Also on Facebook, you can look me up, um, the one woman symphony or by my name, Genevieve Salomon. 
Uh, I also have my website, GenevieveSalomon.com, which is uh, where you can pre-order my album, Catharsis. You can pre-order the digital download, which will be mailed to you at midnight on May 28th, 2021, or I will be mailing out the hard copies that afternoon. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. This was thank really you. great. Yeah, thank okay. you so much.